Is this thing on? <clears throat> this is Artscape, an investigation into the artistic and cultural landscape of our region, with your hosts, Katie and Harold. For the next hour, we are going to take a journey through sound and storytelling. This podcast is brought to you by CFUV 101.9 FM, located on the unceded territories of the Lekwungen and Wasanic peoples, created with the generous support from the BC Arts Council. Join us as we uncover the people, happenings, and organizations that make up the artscape in which we live. It's a fair, and it happened June 26th, 2016, Fisherman's Wharf Park. Basically, it was a collaboration. Open space, the Ministry of Casual Living, so many organizations, so many people. Basically, all rolled into one event, but also just a lifestyle. Sounds intriguing. So what are these sounds in the background that we're hearing? Oh, wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> yes, I, yeah. Please. They were a bunch of folks from the Victoria Composers Collective, which is a community of emerging composers dedicated to the performance and promotion of new music. Basically improvising at this table using found hmm. objects. I see. So it's sort of... Uh, DIY music, perhaps. One could say DIY fashioned sound. Yeah. Full on. That's appropriate. Yeah. So basically, we're going to spend the next hour going around the fair. To the fair? We're going to the fair? We're going to the fair. So by listening to this podcast, it's like pretty much going to the fair. Yeah. Just, you know, come along. But I was thinking... Basically, we should just get Doug and Megan from Open Space to do the rest, because, you know, they can do it. You know, we don't need to do it. They, they can do it. It's like, D-I, not do it, ourselves. I see. D-I-D-I-D-D-I do don't do it yourself. D-I-D-D-I-Y, don't do it yourself. There, yeah. Sweet. D-D-I-Y. D-D-I-Y. That's great. Yeah. So let's just let's just go to the fair. Let's get some cotton candy and enjoy it. Let's go. Some kimchi, you mean? Uh, kimchi cotton candy? No, like some pickles? Uh, kimchi pickle cotton candy. Okay. Uh, my name's Doug Jarvis, and I'm guest curator at Open Space Art Society. Uh, this summer, we have summer interns, and Megan Quigley, who's sitting here beside me, uh, helped us to put out a call for participation to the community. And so I'll just pass it over to her and she can tell you a bit about <laughs> cut that part. We good? Yeah, my name's Megan Quigley and I'm one of the um, summer students at Open Space. And so I'm the 
curatorial assistant. The main part of my work has been supporting with the Natural Science Project and a lot of that being the DIY Life Fair as well as the workshops. Thanks, <laughs> And I've been working with Jennifer Willett uh, to coordinate the DIY Life Art Plus Science Plus Ecology Fair that we're hosting at the Fisherman's Wharf Park. And a big inspiration for the Art and Science Fair was Jennifer's new project, the Great Lakes Algae Organ. My name is Dr. Jennifer Willett. I'm an associate professor at the University of Windsor in the School of Creative Arts. Um, and that sounds really official, but I'm also kind of a kooky artist. And uh, I work in a field called bioart, which is art and biology, or art and biotechnology. But essentially what bioart is, is when rather than using paint or clay or inanimate materials to make art, we use living media to make art. And from my experience, that definition can be really wide. It could be like making art with food, could be bioart. Um, but a lot of the work that I do, I like to make art with organisms and techniques used in the biological sciences towards um, making those organisms and those processes and those techniques more open and available to the general public. So this is a new piece. It's called the Great Lakes Algae Organ. And it's kind of a play on, I don't know if you're aware or not, but Lake Erie every year gets larger and larger algae blooms in it. And it's becoming a real detriment to the quality of the water, to the different organisms that live there, but also especially to like tourism and sporting relationships with the water. And the algae is caused by an excessive use of fertilizers in the surrounding farming region. And as it rains, the water runs off, the fertilizer goes into Lake Erie, which then feeds the normal healthy content of algae in the lake and it turns into a bloom, which means that the lake physically turns green, uh, it smells terrible. So on the one hand, this is sort of a, an opportunity, like a, a, a piece where we can speak about those issues in the region that I live in. At the same time, it's this ironic, beautiful celebration of algae. And so this algae organ is a street organ that plays live music, but also grows and displays living algae. And the algae that we're growing is called spirulina. And it is an edible superfood uh, that provides a full array of vitamins and proteins that the human body needs to live off of, uh, and also uh, Algae in particular is one of the greatest producers of oxygen in the world's ecology. And so algae is also this thing that a lot of scientists are looking towards as a possibility for reversing the effects of climate change. So it's at this locus of like health food, dangerous toxin in the lake, slash may save the world from itself, that I'm deploying algae in this project. The organ itself is kind of a phenomena. It's a very ridiculous, hilarious looking object, like most of my artworks. It's based on a Dutch street organ. And if you're in the Netherlands, they're much larger than this. Uh, this one is about eight feet long and six feet tall, uh, whereas the Dutch ones can be 20 feet long and 15 feet tall. And you see them all over the place in the Netherlands on street corners, and they sometimes have a hand crank or they're mechanically cranked, and they play music. 
uh, and then people sort of pay money, and but it's, it's considered like a street fair, a way of a community engagement object in the Dutch tradition. So this organ um, is very ornate and ridiculous looking. It looks like it belongs at a fair or a, the stampede or do you know what I mean? Uh, it is covered in ornate gold-leafed um, designs that are very botanical. Um, also animals, like there's some deer here and some birds. It looks a little bit like Cinderella's um, carriage. Uh, so it's really ridiculous and it's very feminine, which is interesting because it, it's also on the backside is a functional laboratory where we can grow but also use microscopes and investigate and engage with um, algae in a scientific way. So it's a very feminized object, but it also has sort of scientific um, possibilities, which we most often attribute to sort of more male qualities. So it's this really sort of strange, gendered, ridiculous, funny, imaginary object. Um, so, you know, the term like algae organ, on the one hand, it literally is describing uh, an algae aquarium and a street organ, but then it also becomes this weird pun where it becomes, it also refers to like an organ, like a heart or a lung, right? So this object becomes this sort of vibrating organ that sustains the life of the algae. And there's a microscope here. What might that be? Yeah, so the back of the organ is, we see, I see it as like a, the back of a stage set, right? So it's much rougher in design, and it's more functional. It actually is a functional laboratory. So here you can see a clean space that has stainless steel on the top. That becomes our sterile work environment. It can be all wiped down with alcohol. And there we have a microscope. And that is so that people can come and look at the algae in the microscope and see what the individual pieces of algae look like. We also have a bunch of lab equipment in here for you know, maintaining the life of the algae. Um, we also have uh, in the cabinets a bunch of cycling equipment. So like there are uh, you know, spare tires and you know, things like that so that we can keep the whole organ going. The other thing we have down on the other end of the organ here at the back is we made a little table with a children's microscope so that when we're out in the park at the event, small kids can also have a look at the algae. So first of all, uh, I can see riding it, like it's on a bicycle um, wagon. And so it can be attached to the back of a bicycle and dragged through the streets. And we're going to do that a number of times while we're here. Um, secondly, it is great parked in outdoor environments like the street organs in the Netherlands. It can go on a street corner, but it can go in a park, um, which we're going to do at the waterfront um, this week. And then it also in this environment, it becomes like an art object in the gallery. So it's very visually stimulating, but then the other thing that it has is it has sound. And I think we should play some of the organ for you so that you can see sound really calls people towards it. So this organ is a hand crank organ. I did not build this myself. Uh, in fact, I ordered this online from a traditional organ builder in the US and he built and assembled it for us and we incorporated it into my street organ. Mm -hmm. 
Frank, um, I work very closely with an artist assistant and a fabricator. Her name is Billy McLaughlin, and she really, you know, builds things from scratch. So I'm able to dream up this project and think about how the things could interact with one another, but she's the one who can physically make something out of nothing. And so Billy is really, her hands are all over all of this. Uh, and then I, again, I get back involved again at the level of decoration, the sort of painting, the gold leaf, those, those are more my skills. So the DIY Life Fair is a collaborative curatorial project between myself and Open Space. And we got thinking about the organ as this sort of DIY, do-it-yourself laboratory that involves um, like portability, uh, low-tech, lo-fi, maybe amateur engagement with science um, that also meets maybe the aesthetic needs of a different community outside of the scientific community. Um, and that involves sort of an enthusiastic uh, relationship with life DIY. And so that model we're now using to describe a whole bunch of practices that it, as it turns out are really prevalent in Victoria. And so even though there's not a lot of artists here who call themselves bioartists, actually I'm learning about hundreds of different practices that are ongoing here for a long time that could in some contexts be interpreted as bioart. So we've invited practicing artists to come and present their own projects that also have a DIY life component. And then we've got a roster of people who some consider themselves artists and some don't, who are just really having their own DIY engagements with life. And I'm talking about things like organic farming or you know, culturing your own cheese. Um, and we're gonna bring all of those practices together into one street fair and allow people to experience the DIY life component that is alive and well in Victoria. Jennifer's project helped inspire us inviting a couple of other artists to be kind of guest artists in the fair, uh, one being Verena Kiminiards and Jim Bomford. And Jim, who is Verena's uh, father-in-law, he's developed a compost machine. And Verena does actions and kind of different things with the compost machine. And we thought, well, that would be a good complement so we would have algae growing and then we could address the idea of composting. I'm Verena Kiminiards. And I'm Jim Bomford. Perfect. And are you just going to ask us questions? or? Yeah. Do we have to answer them? Uh, to the best of your ability, that <laughs> would be <laughs> helpful. <laughs> that I don't have to because I have the ability. <laughs> I'm just trying to make some music here. I'm the one that built the composter. And Verena is the one that's using it from an artistic perspective. My background is, in, is as an engineer, formally. I no longer practice. But, you know, that's just one thing. Guy just has to keep busy. 
And I really, really don't enjoy throwing out organics. So uh, I haven't thrown out one single organic in 20 years, whether it's from the garden or from the house. And so that's where the composter comes in, primarily for the household waste. Okay. I just really resent having to throw out <laughs> stuff So like Jim, the inventor, created this machine, which is um, the one that's currently running. It's sort of the size of a dishwasher-ish. It's sort of like yeah. a yeah. home appliance kind of sized machine that works to compost waste in a non-messy form as opposed to the pile in your backyard that gets infested with animals or the ones that you have to, you know, rotate. And I think Jim wasn't very excited by that and because he's an en engineer and an inventor, came up with this other system. And I, as an artist, a bio-artist who uh, is always intrigued in ways to collaborate with other life forms, sometimes collaborate is sort of a loaded word, whether or not it's me sort of engaging with an, a living being or us mutually agreeing to collaborate. Usually the beings I work with, the creatures or the animals, or in this case, it'll be microbes, don't really have a say. So collaboration, whether or not. Jim and I are collaborating, and I'm really interested in what happens inside the compost, like the composting process inside this biodigester, um, the little animals and creatures and microbes and microorganisms that are in there. And I think Jim approaches it from a sort of utilitarian, um, environmental... Well, of course, you come at it. I have to come at it as an applied scientist, really. I mean, that's, that is my background. I mean, yeah, I was an engineer, but my degree is actually in applied science um, in civil engineering. So, you know, it's kind of a natural fit. When I retired, I could then apply myself to something I wanted to do as opposed to something I was paid to do, and hence the composter. Oh, and I've named the piece. Oh, yeah, please. Yeah, for the, just for this, for the DIY, um, the scrapper rat. Oh, both of them? You rolled it all into one? The scrapper rat. Okay, rather than just the rat or the scrapper. Yeah, I like the scrapper rat. I like the sound of it. I was, ha I was happy with the rat. You're happy you with feed the, the rat? rats. <laughs> yeah, but the rats, I don't know if this is, just don't edit this one. <laughs> <laughs> or do edit it. Maybe. Yeah, the... the just the term rat and in bioart brings up all kinds of oh, okay. um, lab rat. Lab rat. If it's just called a rat, and, or that's why it was. I was yeah. Anyway. Can you talk a little bit about the DIY aspect of this project? I can. I did it myself. Yeah, exactly. It's, that's it's what like DIY heck is. Heck I didn't have a team. I, you know, there's <laughs> so this, like it's my it's in my garage. Yeah, it's right? a. Jim has figured out to compost waste, bio kitchen waste, in the most efficient way possible. And ideally, everyone should have one of these rather than throwing our waste, um, food waste, into the garbage, which is ridiculous. I'm actually interested in how this can become like a, a model for like a greater waste management discussion. Well, I mean, from the do-it-yourself aspect, it is what people are doing more and more of these days. I mean, that's what the maker's labs are all about. Using perhaps high tech to do things that you couldn't do um, up until now when the, the availability of the technology and the simplicity of the technology can be applied to things that, it, you know, never could have been done in the past. And in, indeed, I mean, a composter or any kind of biological 
process control is is not possible unless you apply you know some pretty sophisticated technologies in some pretty creative ways so i mean they're they're pretty standard technologies now but they're they can be applied in in areas that i haven't even thought of and i never would have even attempted to do something like a do-it-yourself composter of this nature in my garage with my wife coming and going and sniffing the air unless I was confident that um, the technology to make this thing work could be found and incorporated in it. We feed the composter. We All of our kitchen waste that my husband and I create here in Victoria, we box up and send to his garage and it gets fed through this machine because the, the machine, which is full of living things, needs to be fed. And if it doesn't run, if it doesn't get fed properly in the proper ratios, it gets a tummy ache. Then it starts smelling bad. Or we hear about some air pump not working and then it's like trying to find a new pump system or a fan that you had me looking for on a yeah. German website for it because it's also running in a moist environment. So there's all these sort of technological parameters that need to be maintained. My whole family incorporates their waste in it. So I have two sons, they each have a family, and our one son's school, uh, we pick up theirs as well. So this one little machine, which is the size of a, as Verena says, the size of a washing machine or a dishwasher or something like that, will process, you know, up to about eight pounds a day. And so that's roughly my extended family's garbage, household organics. It's great, you know. Um, you get hooked on it, right? You, and if you don't feed it, you feel guilty. That's because, the thing now. If I'm because going, it gets cold. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you, you're likening it to like the human body and like it's its own kind of entity. Well, it's a digester. It's a biodigester. I think there's technology where biodigesters are used to create methane gas for for fuel. This one, the, the gas isn't harnessed, it's more of a compost, like humus. Well, yeah, I mean, it's all controlled. It, it's not, a, it's not a, a small version of a big centralized composting facility. It's not a methane digester. It's, it's not anything like we've been able to find elsewhere. I mean, there are other, other people do-it-yourselfers and, and companies doing things uh, along this line trying to follow this elusive opportunity in, in creating decentralized utilities, you know, whether it's electrical utilities like your photovoltaics or wind or why not garbage, you know? Mm -hmm. Look at what Victoria is that the, you know, angst it's gone through for years and years and years about its sewage treatment. I mean, <laughs> constantly this where to put a centralized sewage treatment in. With the money, they're putting a billion dollars into a sewage treatment system. And they come up to the university and get them to develop a decentralized system where everybody can have their own one and they can put clean water down the drain instead of, you know, what they're planning to do. It just seems so, I don't know, old-fashioned. <laughs> so you put the organics in and what comes out? Soil? Dirt? Uh... What comes out is dig organically digested, bacterially digested organics. So it's a soil additive. It's, it's something a soil. That you it's would not use. soil per se, yeah. because it doesn't have the mineral content of soil. It would be the same as buying, you know, the bag of compost to at the garden store 
before you plant your veggie garden in the spring, you would add this in at a certain ratio. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it it's not. It was never envisaged as being a a generator of a compost that people could bag and sell. It was no. It, you you put it. You, you, well, rather you don't than, want to throw it out in the middle of the winter you, when it's raining, yeah, or in the middle of summer scraps. when it's hot. You know? Or we have the two week pickup collection of the green bins that end up just stinking terribly, and then you put stuff that isn't. Um, meat per se in the backyard compost so you don't end up dogs with dogs or rats but that smells too if you don't turn it and this system is just a way that Jim has come up with to get rid of organic waste and put it back into the environment. So your collaboration how does that manifest with you and with the organisms like is it performance or is it with these microbes yeah yeah Um, within the project well we're just we're early on in this collaborative process jim and me first off and um right now we're kind of working just through the process of of making the the material on the other end and figuring out a way to engage with those initially just through demonstration of what can happen and then there's different different things that we're feeding it and how that manifests in the end product um, that's the bio art it's not necessarily like a an end product that this machine spits out a sculpture or a pile of something that I turn into a sculpture like it's the engagement with the machine from an artistic perspective is sort of what I'm interested in and how we can communicate with these and, and work with these microbes per se. Like I'm really interested to see what happens when they get too many orange peels all at once. And I know what happens. We've seen it happen. It doesn't smell very nice. I'd love to throw like a microphone in there or a GoPro, but then there's a whole bunch of other technological parameters that need to um, be tested first. So we don't have any any of those projects yet. They're on the, on the horizon, let's just say. He has to trust me first with the machine. She has to trust me first with the machine. <laughs> Harold, guess what? What? After recording that interview with Farina and Jim, mm-hmm. they mentioned to me that the scrapper rat is going to be the artist in residence in the visual arts building this fall of 2016. No way. Yeah. The, uh, the composter. Yeah. Oh, wait, sorry. Sorry to interrupt you, Doug. Take it away. And then we also invited Alexis Hogan, who is doing a residency here at Open Space, and she has an interest in invasive species. And so she's going to do a project that explores kind of harvesting invasive species and making paper out of them. So she'll be kind of demonstrating that at the fair. Uh, and so those three projects were kind of the, the inspiration uh, from the Open Space side. My name is Alexis Hogan. <laughs> I'm an emerging artist and curator of sorts. I am doing a curatorial research residency at Open Space, which I've been doing since October and will continue to do until October of 2016. And I also have like a art practice as well. So both of these things overlap. And what I'm doing at Open Space is a curatorial research project about Indigenous and non-Indigenous resistance to the Canadian colonial project over the past 30 years and I'm working with Open Space's archives and then 
I'm working beyond that in my in my research. I feel like that kind of overlaps with the artist, or it's, there's a direct super highway between uh, that practice and uh, my artistic practice as well, which is uh, frequently an investigation of invasive species and how they operate. Um, my interests are kind of like a reflection of a personal history that can be expanded to a larger history. So I'm kind of always looking at the microcosm of my own relations, but I feel like they can parallel a macrocosm of relations in uh, what is known as Canada. So that's pretty much where I start from all the time. Uh, and I continually ask myself this question that I heard in one of my first semesters in university at Emily Carr, which is a, a quote by the multidisciplinary philosopher Donna Haraway, she's a feminist philosopher, among many other things. And this question that she asks is, how do we inhabit the histories we inherit? And that's kind of a guiding principle for me, not even a principle, but just like a question that constantly fuels where I move in my practices and like how I carry myself and how I hold my relationships with people and places and, and things. The DIY Art, Science and Ecology Fair, and so how, do, how did I get to be involved with this thing. <laughs> um, I would definitely say that uh, my relationship to sort of like underground punk and metal and anarchist countercultures definitely, there's never been a question of why I would be, you know, utilizing DIY sort of practices because it's definitely about like not being reliant upon mass culture and mass production of things, but rather taking the opportunities to learn and skillshare through doing it yourself, essentially. So that's, that's definitely where I come from. And that's something that I try and maintain. It's not even like a conscious sort of trying to maintain. This is just like the way that I come to things is if I want to make something, I don't, I want to learn how to make it, not like pay somebody else to make it for me or, or buy something to do it um, and that's just like I'm also just a really hands-on type person so uh, a lot of the, the work that I do is is collaborative and when it comes to my participation in the DIY art and science fair and ecology fair um, I was having conversations with Doug Jarvis who's one of the mentors for my uh, curatorial research residency at Open Space. And I was telling him about a collaborative project that I have with one of my teacher friends at Emily Carr. Uh, her name is Beth Howe, and she's the printmaking faculty. And through conversations that Beth and I had had about the ways that our practices overlapped, we decided to embark on a long-term artist book printmaking project. Beth works like out of Washington. She commutes to Vancouver, but she also works out of Washington, which is where she's from and she has an investment in ecological, I wouldn't say ecological practices, but she definitely like is always picking up what I'm putting down as far as wanting to understand more about invasive species for sure. So that's what we started talking about was creating a three book series about invasive species and borders and histories of place. 
So that's where we're at right now. And I was telling Doug about how I am in the process of making Scotch broom and Himalayan blackberry fibers into paper as a part of this book project while I'm researching histories of specific places. And he was really interested in that. Basically the way that I'm setting it up logistically is there's gonna be like, I'm making a zine out of my like like a how-to guide but it also kind of like documents what I'm doing in the project and that's sort of like a takeaway that people can have um, which is I think a really interesting way for the project to live outside of my relationship to it if people were to see I was thinking okay let me take a step back to I was thinking about the way that Nancy Turner was talking in the interview that you did with her in Island of Voices and how part of her practice of being somebody who is a settler that acknowledges themselves as a settler in this place is to help to regenerate camas. Um, and so she cultivates uh, her relationship to place through nurturing that relationship to specific plants that have lost their sort of natural foothold here. And so for me, I see myself doing interventions upon interventions. I see like Scotch broom as like an, uh, you know, an analogous intervention of settler existence here. So in disrupting that flow or dis disrupting like this pattern of growth, and removing these plants from the soil, there also kind of like lives a place to return something into that part of the earth. So I was thinking about how interesting it would be if people were um, beyond just scotch broom pulling, but like taking that plant, doing something with it, or using that hole as an opportunity to plant something else. I have this friend that like likes to say that my practice, and I don't think he's being mean, but that it's like very uh, self-flagellating, you know what I mean? Where it's about guilt, and mm. that's not, I wanna make that very explicit, it's not where I'm coming from. Um, but I, I see it more of like a practice of consciousness and responsibilities, and, and that's where I'm coming from. I'm not like, you know, digging out scotch broom as penance but I feel like it's because I am like cultivating deeper relations with a place and hopefully with people so I'm talking about this and where this practice stems from and then making a zine and having people take that zine and see it as an opportunity to develop their own sort of relationships to these plants is super interesting to me. I don't know if it would go anywhere, but I would be really excited if it did. And I think I'd like to think that there would be opportunities for people to contact me if they if they felt so inclined, you know. So, but down at uh, is it Fisherman's Wharf? Yeah, down at Fisherman's Wharf. I was just talking with Doug yesterday about logistics. I'm going to have the project in its different phases down there so I'll be bringing blackberry and scotch broom that people can you know use uh, I'll show them how to like strip the outer bark um, and show them like with the inner sort of fibers that you need to create paper out of it and then have I'm gonna have a pot with like the soda ash and some fibers in water but I'm not gonna have it cooking just because I feel like there's gonna be so much going on that I don't actually want to have like an element or a gas 
burner going and then and then there's going to be like a table or two with um, vats inserted into them and inside these vats or like tubs or whatever will be the pulp from the plants and then the mold and decals are i found like a you know like a paper making hack where you can make them out of old picture frames and um like window stripping like weather stripping and uh and mesh from window screens and things like that um and i'm in like the trial and error phase right now so things will be tweaked as they go along yesterday i was in a park i was in the park by my house knocking hill and i was removing this large fur around that had been like uh, chopped chopped up as part of a blowdown and <clears throat> For the book project that I'm doing with Beth, we're actually casting the paper onto cross sections of uh, trees from clear cuts. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought it would also be like appropriate to cast it onto cross sections from trees within this Gary Oak restoration habitat, which is really not really a restoration habitat. It's more of just like a, a petri dish for invasive species. <laughs> Uh -oh, at this point because they've all run amok but you know I was carrying this close to 50 pound cross-section home through the park and this guy was like hey well what do you do with that tree round and and he was like you could make a really good table out of that and I was like yeah good but this is what I'm doing with it I'm going to like take scotch broom from the park so it's nice that like being and working in public like generates conversation already. He had no idea what I was talking about, but I think that that's a really important component to working in this way, is to bring other people into it and to have weird, uncomfortable conversations about place and making things in a place. And then we're also working with the Ministry of Casual Living, and the ministry has been working with Cedric, Nate, and Jim Bomford, uh, to develop a project here in Victoria. We were hoping to be able to host their Deadhead project, uh, but that didn't work out. So we've been working with them on a new project, and that, they're going to launch this at the fair. And they, they work with kind of reclaimed materials, and they explore the idea of thinking through building. So they're going to have a, a new project there. I'm Nathan Bomford. I'm Cedric Bomford. I'm an artist, and I make things too. We both are artists who make things and make things. Well, my name is Jim Bomford. I'm part of the uh, the project. I'm not. We don't even have a name for that project yet. We called the truck project. What did Cedric call it? Cedric called it uh, Deadhead Redux. Uh, Deadhead Redux. Okay, that makes sense. The evolution of the Deadhead. The Deadhead was a project we did over about four years in Vancouver, and it was on display over the summer of 2014 um, on a barge that we had anticipated would last for a while uh, and then uh, one January evening we got a call saying the guys who own the barge need the barge back so we had to pull the project off on very short notice which involved us uh, doing a four-day demolition and salvage project on our own art which was quite something it was interesting actually it was kind of fun uh, and so we were left with a pile of stuff that we deemed was interesting or that we could actually carry off and uh, now we're making something out of that leftover material so it's a bit of a deadhead redux 
uh, this time mounted on an aging F-450 flat deck truck rather than an aging World War II uh, barge. Interesting thing with that is that the people who we got the barge off for deadhead are directly across uh, the water here. You can see that barge, there's a barge over there and, mm -hmm. and a tugboat. Uh, those are both part of the people that allowed us to use their barge to build the original piece on. So we've almost come full circle with some of this material. That's really neat. So it's my understanding <laughs> that the materials in the first place were kind of salvaged and reclaimed. So is that a part of your process? It, it can, we get material from wherever we can. If it makes sense to salvage and reclaim, then we do that. Um, there's become quite a market for salvaged and reclaimed material. So now, because it's become popular in, I don't know, design circles, I guess, uh, the salvaged old weathered material, which doesn't necessarily have the structural integrity it once, did, once had, um, is now about three times the cost of brand new material. Uh, so what started as a uh, uh, kind of a budgetary concern, that's why we were reclaiming most of the material, which was essentially trash at the time, um, now has become um, a bit of a budgetary concern going the other direction. So for people that might be listening to this and they can't quite see it, can you kind of give a little bit of a description? Of well, yeah, that's easy. Just imagine a large Ford flat deck truck. Well, not huge, not a semi, but, but a, like a large pickup with a ramp coming up from the front and wrapping around the driver's side up onto the flat deck in behind. And on the flat deck is, um, well, it's actually a bit of a takeoff from an old horse-drawn trolley bus, kind of the transition between the stagecoach and the trolley. And that one, actually, the photo we have from an old, well, it's from the archive in Calgary, actually, but this photo is of a horse-drawn trolley from Winnipeg. So that's what it's modeled on, roughly, very, very roughly. So that sits on there, and beside it we have a, a rather steep ramp that goes up to a lookout that I guess you could think of as a, a lookout for a, I don't know, fort? <laughs> or a, a security kiosk? It seems very uh, playful. Playful it is. Um, yeah, but it's a lot of work to make. I think the key again is, is that if kids like it, then we've done our job. <laughs> but you should probably have a walk on it. Yeah, oh yeah, I'd love to. Just watch out for holes and things, <laughs> protrusions, head bonkers, and hollows. <laughs> is this the way you go it up? It is, yeah. Yeah, just watch your step. I know your dad's an engineer, so I feel ah, pretty safe. He accepts no responsibility for anything in here. So it's the three of us that worked on the Deadhead and the three of us that worked on this one as well. You know, as well as Hollis. Thank, thank you, Hollis. She did a great job. Couldn't have done it without her, actually. So, so yeah, it's fun to have a piece of work, artwork, on a truck. 
and it, matter of fact, to have the truck incorporated in it. That's quite unique, even for us, I think, anyway. <laughs> so it's my understanding that the kind of process of building this is, is and can be an intuitive process for you. Can you maybe speak to that? Uh, it might look architectural in the scale and in the material and in the construction, but um, it lacks the design element and the consideration of, of uh, I don't know what you would say, that uh, the formalistic constraints. Uh, it's, but it comes from a different place. Uh, it doesn't have a function uh, in the way that you're not supposed to live in it, you're not supposed to use it, it's not institutional. You are supposed to go in it and on it if you feel like it and hopefully be encouraged to think about the constraints placed upon building by things such as codes, best practices, which we typically don't have anything to do with. The idea behind it is to use building more like a kind of drawing or sketching than a realization of plans. And in that way, it removes itself from an architectural workflow or design workflow in a lot of ways. So we try to collapse the typically disparate elements of, of um, planning, designing, constructing. It confuses with like who's the client and who's commissioning and who's, what is exactly happening here. At any point in the process we can decide that that doesn't work and so it gets taken apart or reused or returned into something else. And what you get at the end is divorced from the idea at the beginning and yet is a complete manifestation of the idea. So if you start with the the, the thinking that, well, we're going to build this, and then you end up there, then why even build it, right? So if, if the idea is, that, okay, we've got this idea, we're going to do something, where we end up will be somewhere else. And that way it's like drawing or, or any other kind of art making, I suppose, where the process of creative investigation leads to the end product rather than a process of planning. And in that way it escapes an architectural, uh, there's a bind to, in, in architecture, I think, is that you you do the plan and then someone else builds it. Someone else does this and that and it, everything is divided up in, into little pieces and we get a chance to do everything. How did you guys all work together? To... Uh, that's a good question. We work well together. We work well together. And that, that, that's the best I could say. We, I mean, they've always worked with me, you know, when they were growing up. Um, and now I work with them because I'm getting old. <laughs> They're in charge, which is just fine. I'm liking that a lot. Um, every now and again I have to tell them how it's supposed to look, but they do what they want to do anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it seems like uh, it really kind of takes into account the whole family enjoying it. Well, the kids, again, are the proof in the pudding, you know. You've, we've got grandkids hanging off all corners of it, and, and there's all kinds of stuff going on around us, and this is where they'd rather be, right? just playing on it. So that's great to me. No, it's just fun. It's just fun to, to have a nice, relatively simple project like this where we can all get together and, and work on it. That's great. It's a nice note to end on. <laughs> okay.
And the ministry also, kind of in conjunction with programming around the Bomfords project, uh, the ministry's got the Pedal Box Gallery, which has been around for a little while, and they're going to be showing uh, somebody's work. Insert that work here. Um, and then they're all, they also... Sergio Rojas. Rojas. Chavez. Sergio Rojas Chavez. And Sergio is currently has his plants in residence at Open Space this summer. So he will be bringing those on the back of the bike cart gallery. Pedal box gallery. Yeah, so my name is uh, Sergio. I am an artist from Costa Rica and I am currently living in Victoria. And the project that I have here is part of a larger project uh, that is based around our understanding of uh, our relationship to houseplants. So I, I tried to sort of investigate what role do these plants have in our lives. We keep them in our house, are they our guests, or are they like surrogate children or pets, you know? Or if they're just plants, right? What, what function do they have in the interior space? When thinking about these things, I think like there's a lot of notions of, or ideas around belonging, right? Most plants that we keep in our houses, they're tropical plants, and they don't, they don't grow in Canada, so there's a sense of exoticism there that I find really interesting, coming from the tropics. The whole project started when I was in the supermarket, actually, and I saw a tiny banana plant potted. It blew my mind because I had grown around banana plants, huge banana plants all around. So it was impressive to me to see that they had actually contained this plant. It looked so displaced. So I bought it, uh, and I started buying every banana plant that I could find since then. And I started collecting houseplants to understand uh, the roles that I was talking about. So the project that I have here, it's, it's one, of the, one of its iterations. Uh, this is called uh, Houseplants on Tour. So it's in conjunction with the Ministry of Casual Living's Pedal Box Gallery, which I think personally it's a great space because it allows for mobility in art and just like dispersion around the city. You know, it creates sort of like a pause in people's lives. People's lives in the city can be a bit busy. And when you see something that seems like it doesn't belong, like a trailer full of houseplants, it sort of makes you reconsider maybe your own relationship to your houseplants or just the, the city living. But anyway, the plants that I have here are from my house and from friends and people who have donated their plants to come here today to, to the science fair. And I think this project, what it does is sort of like a humorous approach to these ideas of belonging. And it's that we make, we try to make plants into humans. We anthropomorphize them, right? First, by just potting them one by one in pots. That's highly unnatural. Plants grow like in communities outside, right? They grow they don't grow one and then the next and then the next, but they grow like however they want. Their roots are interconnected underneath the, the ground. But when we have them in pots, they're sort of individuals like us. So I think that's a way that we have controlled them and that we want to relate to them as individuals, right? So the plants that I brought here are sort of a play on the fact that people walk their dogs and why not walk your plants, right? Like if we're already making all of these species so anthropomorphized then it, through humor we can do it better right we can approach these maybe like heavy heavier topics it, through a humorous way so i think it's really interesting because it's a participatory bike ride so people are allowed to bring their plants or just follow me on the ride and uh it starts conversations on belonging or why we keep these plants sort of like uh, ideas around where these plants come from and I think here for the science fair it's also really interesting because I didn't conceive it as a science project but uh, it definitely can be in interaction with sort of the algae project the native plant species project 
so yeah, I think I think this is it. I'm offering uh, five-minute plant tours here. So I got some plants in backpacks that people can walk around the fair and bring back to me, so they can feel what it what it means to transport something that is usually grounded. You know, so we we don't really uproot it, but we've found a way to to mobilize something that's grounded. So yeah. I'm Christine White, and. I started working with John on the Petal Box Gallery about two years ago, but he started it originally on his own about, would it be three years with ago? Kalani, yeah. Oh, with Kalani, okay, yes. Yeah. That was three years ago? About three years ago, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm John Dowdle, and uh, I started Petal Box Gallery with Kalani, my partner, about three years ago. And uh, the original idea was like to have a bike float you could take around town and like show different places and do parades and stuff because yeah and the, the pedal box gallery itself is just this platform and then the platform's sort of ever changing of what's on it exactly i actually have an interesting personal experience with it when i got injured and it was at my house my friend towed me to the walk-in clinic this is literally you can see it from my window it'd be like a 50 cent taxi ride like ridiculous so I was like well why don't you just pull me in the pedal box gallery so it's kind of neat just how different it can be in different scenarios like yes the purpose of it is to exhibit art but it's also very utilitarian and then they're all, they also developed a new uh, water-based version of the pedal box which is called the paddle box and they put out a call for proposals and they're going to present the work of Roy Green during the fair uh, as part of the new paddle box gallery which will also show other others over the course of the summer. Yeah well there was the, I think it kind of started with like the bomb like the Bombford project which was like the deadhead in Vancouver and they had built um, this big nibble on those big bars they built this huge structure that like hosted different events and stuff and it was done on a reclaimed wood and then we were talking with open space to bring it over here but then that didn't work out because the person who owned um the barge uh decided not to do it but then we needed to like match the funding that they, that we had received for it so we we're like hmm, what can we do to kind of like activate the waterways so we thought of turning the pedal box into the paddle box and having to be like amphibious and uh christine and i both have a background in paddling so like i don't have like professional background but i grew up like on the water on a lake which is different than an ocean so we just thought we'd go for it then we got some funding through the city and the crd and we just like uh getting it going with all these artists it's great yeah and got to get a shout out to doug jarvis too he like and like the people at the ministry of casual living for kind of like helping create the stew to be able to like produce it and uh, it's been great so far it's just we've shown it like just once at Vic West Fest but people were taking so many pictures of it and it's Roy Green's work that's happening right now which is these three big bird cutouts and people just like love it and we built a big keel for it so there's this keel that we have that digs into the water because um, like the big piece of the ply where the wind just kind of catches it so we can watch the wind. I think it's really interesting to use these different objects that are made for utilitarian factors and then incorporate that into an art practice. So it's sort of changing the dynamic of how people can be creative or how people see their everyday life. And oh, one thing that really helped was I was actually gifted a canoe this year. So we were able to use that canoe. And we put the call out 
again, the whole logistical factor, we weren't totally sure how how it was going to happen and we were sort of open to the idea of working with the artists. We knew we had this canoe, we knew we had this trailer platform. Um, I think we've also sort of envisioned having the platform itself go onto the water by removing the wheels and then having some sort of flotation thing that it sits on, having it beside the canoe, kind of like a catamaran style. There's all these sort of unknown factors. We've never displayed art on the water before, so it's very interesting to have it be really process-based and working with the artist to problem-solve. And I, you know, I've never really helped with another gallery before, but I really love the hands-on approach to running this gallery space yeah. and the collaborative nature of this Paddlebox project in particular. Because mm -hmm. I find myself as an artist in my own practice, I really love collaboration and getting to work with people and and then the process based around situations and mm -hmm. and then the logistical factors. Yeah, having to take the paddle box to their house, what they're going to yeah. build on it, because we're all kind of walking in the dark or something and trying to reach around and get these new ideas and like make it work together. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, because I think it is sort of this innovative way to show art that's different from your regular everyday, mm -hmm. you know and. I, mean, I think we've even tried to, when we did this call for paddle box, we did a gallery floor plan, <laughs> which was the measurements of the paddle box gallery and then the canoe. But we still had a lot of questions around, you know, how to install or what, how that looks exactly. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is, sometimes we don't really have all the answers and we kind of just have to work together to, to make it happen. And then just, it's funny just having to portage the canoe, like in the physicality of it. And it is kind of do it yourself because you're, you're just doing it with your two feet yeah. or your arms, you know, yeah. or you're biking it around and just having that kind of autonomy in a way is really awesome and empowering. Yeah. But it like takes time because with this gallery, it's not just like boom, the space, white walls, you just hang it, put it up, hang it, put it up. It's, there's always kind of these different angles. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it takes artists a while to kind of conceptualize what they want to do on it too. Mm -hmm. That was fun. I had a great time. It was super thought-provoking. I just want to go home and, you know, just start building a well, mystical, magical playground on let's, a barge. Let's just wrap this up. Wrap it up. Well, I thought we were a part of the DDIY movement. The don't do it yourself. Let's just get someone. Let's get uh, Megan to do it. Yeah, that's probably a good call. She is an assistant curator, after all. Yeah, so let her do it herself. Great. And so in organizing the fair, it came out of this idea of making visible all of the things that we engage with in community that are actually really awesome ways of responding or skill sharing or making, but also doing it in a little bit of a humorous way. <laughs> I think DIY life is supposed to be a little, a little coy or a little satirical. Like it's kind of a parody of a hashtag more so than a sincere, you know, DIY life. But, yeah, that sounded really aggressive. <laughs> but yeah, there, there's just like this spirit of skill sharing and creativity that I think is a very natural one. And 
just the curiosity of what happens when you make that visible and put it in a space and activate it. So, yeah. So I think we're really trying to address the idea of skills and also make the idea of skills a little more complicated. So there's a spectrum. There are some more pragmatic skills, like we have a silk screening station, we have button making, we have fermentation swaps. And so these are things that I think um, are recognizable as skills. But then we also have a project that Alexis Hogan is doing called Patterns of Growth, where she's teaching you how to make paper out of scotch broom. And so I think the idea of skill is so interesting because of the economy that it lives in. And I feel like it's, yeah, oh, totally, I can make my own pickles, that's a skill. But I feel like saying to you know a person, well, you could also make paper out of scotch broom is perhaps less tangible. That's what's so exciting about it. And then it gets into the, the other social implications of like what it means to like, understand the context of the land you're on and understand the context of like how you're relating to it and how you can also like implicate yourself in that. And so I think in that way, it really expands the language of a skill and makes it a little more complicated and a little more messy. And I also would just say that we're not, you know, trying to be a space where people can come in and out and feel as though they are like more qualified to do anything. And I think what's exciting is some of the things that you'll experience here are maybe totally strange and maybe you will never need to know how to extract DNA from a strawberry. But just validating all of these experiences as experiences of knowledge and sharing and community um, is really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> You know? Yeah. yeah. And like this interaction, seeing how podcasts go down, just being able to share space with that is, I think, perhaps a softer, but maybe a more communal experience of skill sharing.